Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Um, I'm taking this opportunity as your host, Naziati Mohammed Yaqob, under the topic of architectural theory, to present a series of lectures. And the first one is what I presented in the first week, the first lecture, an introduction to architectural theory. It was done on the 18th October 2021, but I'm going to record it on audio. Audio has a different way of addressing because obviously the set of slides can't be seen here, but you can check it out in the YouTube channel, Naziati Yaakob, and you can check out this first lecture that I did on, on introduction to architecture theory and on week one, LT1. You know, when we discuss architecture theory, um, we'd always like to refer to the categories that is done by architectural historians and one particular slide that I have, which is commonly found, is the Charles Jang's six traditions. The so six traditions are the logical, the idealist, the self-conscious, intuitive, activist, and unselfconscious. 80% of the environment is unselfconscious. So these six traditions would, um, you know, sort of look like an organic um, amorphous thing that goes from the 1900s to the 2000s. And um, some architects would be uh, placed throughout this timeline in different traditions, obviously, because architects are not fixed in terms of their mind. When they start off, they could be dealing or experimenting with something, and later on they will focus on something else. Um, we have people like that, like Sterling, for example. You know, you could put him in the brutalist period and also the um, uh, postmodern period later in his life. And um, it's a really interesting diagram and you, you need to go and have a look at it uh, in, the, um, in the slides if you could have the chance. Now when we talk about uh, why learn architectural theory, is it relevant architecture theory? Is it necessary? I mean, Architecture practice is a practical um, vocation. You learn some basic principles or design principles and you apply them. I mean, you just have to do the drawings and and the drawings are the bread and butter of, arch of arch uh, the architectural skills. And then, I mean, you architecture theory was, was the use of learning about all this uh, people that has been, uh, you know, uh, professed by lecturers on the architecture theory course, like what I'm doing now. So there was always this this thing that people were saying, well, what's the use of architecture theory? And I teach architecture theory in the second year. And this is one of the things that I need to convince um, students of architecture that architecture theory is very much something that is important and is part of architecture practice. And later on, uh, students of architecture could find it useful and would 
keep on reading theory, keep on wanting to learn about architects. I mean, I was talking about expressions and how an architect or a designer could express in terms of writing and drawing. I mean, writing and drawing going together, you know. And in school, that's, that is what happens. But what about later on when you graduate? Do I need to deal with writing? Do I need to deal with reading? Now, the only way to go if you want to acquire more knowledge and skills is actually to read and write. And write is the important thing as well, to be able to profess. These are tools that actually when you do them, you actually reflect on things, just like you're drawing. So uh, with the increasing influence of science and technology, this is a quote, yeah, by Paknikar in 1959, um, when he was addressing the Indian uh, um, architecture architects association, it said that quote scientists with the background of art rather than artists with the background of science. That's interesting that with the influence of science and technology, increasingly architects are deemed as scientists with a background of art rather than artists with a background of science. This is in 1959. That was ages ago, you know, um, almost 70 years ago. Um, 60 years ago, sorry. And, yeah, when we have a drawing... We deal with aesthetics as well as science, the construction of the material, or a lot of things regarding science. Now with sustainability being in the forefront of things, green architecture or sustainable architecture, and then we have to have some understanding of nature and integration of it, environmental science, you know, and how to construct where you have a balance in terms of green architecture and the environment that you want to produce. So there is this understanding of science, obviously, but what about aesthetics? Do you consider architects as artists? Now, with disregarding architects as artists, can you actually come out with some sensibilities that could be straddling on arts and humanities? So, I mean, all I need to know is sociology or maybe a bit of psychology, but I don't really need to be an artist, do I? Now, the, the sensibilities as an artist, because there's a problem with perception of an artist. Of, obviously, the artistic process has its own process. It's to do unto to you. It's to have a conversation with yourself. Now, if you turn it around and an artist having a conversation with others, not just with yourself, not just to prove a point, not just to, to do it, uh, something that you, you want to experiment yourself and with disregard to others, you know. If you turn it around, you want to have a conversation with others, then you're still an artist. Is there anywhere the meaning of an artist just on, unto themselves? I mean, it's expanded, the meaning of artists. 
and here's to do with 3D art, with living art, meaning that you live in it. You, you, you use architecture, you're, you're in the architecture, you're in the art. So this question about whether architects are the artists or scientists is something that is a no-brainer and, uh, for sure. So if you want to learn architectural theory, you also need to learn about the sensibilities of being an artist in a way. So there's another argument where why learn architecture theory? Are architects concerned about problem solving? If you just concerned about problem solving, I mean, you just, that's nothing to do with being an artist because you, being a scientist, you would problem solve. Yeah. Now, many professions in the world, like, a medical a doctor or a profession, a professional in the medical world, diagnosing and analyzing and giving a solution to the problem with regard to the human physiology and things relating to um, you know, psychology or whatever of the human. But what about architecture, which is the environment that the human is in? So, um, so learning architecture theory is also learning about problem solving. And if you don't actually want to have some sensibilities about what's happening around humans and around yourself in terms of the spatial sense, and more than the sixth sense, yeah, more, sorry, more than the fifth senses of hearing, uh, vision, uh, smell, taste, and touch, more than that. So there's a spatial sense or maybe a three-dimensional or even fourth-dimensional sense of, of going through space, you know. <clears throat> so architects are in this, this profession that is doing problem-solving not only of a, pub, uh, a private building or a dwelling, but also for a public building or for urban environment. So they go through urban environment. This is one of those big gaps where... You're not sure. The urban designers have to design for urban design, you know, and how do they design it? Or do architects solve urban problems or planners? They, they are not designers. Can they solve uh, urban, pro, uh, urban design? So, yeah, this is one of the things that we learn architecture theory. What are the thoughts and reading that we can find out there with regard to the theorists that they've written about the uh, problem solving in urban environment and architectural environment. There are many architectural theories, um, such as the historical ones, Vitruvius, Palladio, Viollet le Duc. The, the example for formalism and space is Summerson. These are writers as well. I mean, they're not practicing architect, but they write about architecture. So they're in this category. And then we have other, others such as the modernists, Steen Eiler Rasmussen, Le Corbusier, Ebenezer Howard. Then you have the postmodern and the contemporary, Christopher Alexander, Kenneth Frampton, Jeffrey Kipnis, Norbert Schultz, Aldo Rossi, Robert Venturi. You have also from Digital Architecture, Schumacher, Greg Lynn, Salingaros, and Anti-Architecture, Foucault. 
Um, of course, these are not the final list. As you know, there are many architectural theories. This is what was presented in the lecture. Uh, so they are just a selection. Yes, coming from the historical perspective with Vitruvius, in the Architectura on Architecture, published as 10 books on architecture, which is a treatise on architecture written by the Roman architect, Vitruvius, and military engineer. So Vitruvius dedicated to his patron, the Emperor Caesar Augustus, this book as a guide for building projects. As the only treatise on architecture to survive from antiquity, it has been regarded since the Renaissance as the first book on architectural theory, as well as a major source on the canon of classical architecture, written between 30 and 15 BC. So these are references I took and available in the lecture, what these references are. Vitruvius, some time ago, um, for the emperor, I mean, this is patronage. I mean, patronage happened very widely now, right? So it started long ago, and the only way that you're going to be relevant or other people refer to you and uh, is to actually write for the emperor, obviously, a guide. And this has been referred to many in the medieval times as well. So Vitruvius it is. So in the Architectura, 10 books on architecture, Vitruvius wrote on, we were talking about urban design just now, so here we go. He talked about many things. One, town planning, architecture, or civil engineering in general, and the qualifications required of an architect or the civil engineer. Number two, he talked about building materials. Three, temples and the orders of architecture includes the section on body proportions that led to Da Vinci's drawing. Now, you know, obviously the Roman architecture is about the classical orders of architecture. Number four, the continuation of book three. Number five, civil buildings. Number six, domestic buildings. Number seven, pavements and decorative plasterwork. Eight, water supplies and aqueducts. Nine, sciences influencing architecture like geometry, measurement, astronomy, sundial. And ten, because it's ten books on architecture, ten, the use and construction of machines Roman siege engines, water mills, drainage machines, Roman technology, hoisting pneumatics. Writing something down is so important because then in posterity, someone else could refer to as what Vitruvius did. But his intention, the main intention is for promotion and to be the person that is the expert in architecture during the Roman times. So, though often cited for his famous triad of characteristics associated with architecture, utilitas, firmita, 
and venustas, which directly means utility, strength, and beauty. The aesthetic principles that influence later treatise writers were outlined in Book 3, derived partially from Latin rhetoric through Cicero and Varro, Vitruvian terms for order, arrangement, proportion, and fitness for intended purposes have guided architects for centuries and continue to do so. For goodness sake, we have a lot to owe it owe to uh, Vitruvius for outlining this important aspects on architecture. Even though it's to do with classical architecture, I mean, you can always debate, yeah, which is better, Gothic, uh, classical, modern, and so on. But the at that uh, time, during those times, the intention to actually to <clears throat> fulfill um, a template or a guide was very important that he did so. He also... Vitruvius, the Roman author, gives advice on the qualifications of an architect in Book 1 and on types of architectural drawing. So Roman architects were skilled in engineering, art, and craftsmanship combined. Vitruvius was very much of this type of effect reflected in the architectura, when he covered a wide variety of subjects, he, sh- he saw as touching on architecture, which included many aspects that may seem irrelevant to modern eyes, ranging from mathematics to astronomy, mete- meteorology, and medicine. In the Roman conception, architecture needed to take into account everything, touching on the physical and the intellectual life of man and his surroundings. Therefore, Vitruvius deals with many theoretical issues concerning architecture. For instance, in Book 2 of the Architectura, he advises architects working with bricks to familiarize themselves with pre-Socratic theories of matter so as to understand how their materials will behave. In Book 9, it relates the abstract geometry of Plato to the everyday work of the surveyor. Astrology is cited for its insights into the organization of human life, while astronomy is required for the understanding of sundials. Likewise, Vitruvius cites Cytosibius of Alexandria and Archimedes for their inventions. Aristotle's Aristotle's apprentice for music, Agathacus for theater, and Varro for architecture. So these, uh, what I read just now, is uh, found in uh, Wikipedia under the Architectura. Now, we have here, very interesting to look at historical architectural theorist and Vitruvius, someone who leads the way in us understanding architecture. And they were, um, in the architectura, seems to be a very comprehensive guide for everything 
um, that relates to classical uh, architecture or the antiquity. So the me medieval um, uh, medieval age architects and the Renaissance architects in particular see no reason why they should create something new. They so that's why the classical architecture was relevant and much of the principles learned from the antiquity were reused or referred to in the Renaissance. So we have something in the physical world that seems to be the main tenets of the Western civilization, much of Western civilization. And architecture plays a part very much in how the setting, uh, the conditions, the aesthetics were, should be done. I think uh, application or the science of it goes hand in hand with architecture. And here we have an example of that. And although still raw, still there's knowledge of science came later and the age of enlightenment and so on um, in the 17th century. But you can see how immediately humans or men um, would react to the environment and how they would um, want you to make the sense of it all. And thus Vitruvius did so. Going into the Renaissance man Palladio, um, another historical example of architecture theory. Andrea Palladio, 1508-1580, was an Italian Renaissance architect active in the Venetian Republic. Palladio, as mentioned, one of those who are in, who is influenced by Roman and Greek architecture, primarily Vitruvius. Influence many architects, the British architect Inigo Jones. He wrote the book on his teachings, the four books of architecture. So I have in my slides the image of um, the elevation, sectional elevation, actually, part section, part elevation of Villa La Rotonda. And... Um, and also the plan and how I was influenced by Professor James Curl, who was my history lecturer in Leicester Polytechnic or De Montfort University. I was so enthralled by understanding about classical architecture through him. And he described that, you know, it looks like a cross, but inside you have the living quarters, you have... Um, cardinal, the cardinal um, diagram of north, east, west, and south. And in each point, at each point, you have the grand staircase coming from the landscape area uh, leading to the portico. It's very symmetrical. Even the 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 plan is designed symmetrically because it culminates in this rotunda or uh, the circular space inside with dome circular space 
high ceiling and a balcony area. This device, I've seen this device in a restaurant, which is actually in a historical building in Penang, Malaysia. Yes, I, uh, the proportions of it similar. There's a rotunda and there is a balcony. I mean, it's two floors and it's so intimate as well. And it's the sort of like a special space or the dominant space, a climatic space that one will find after one enters. And I mean, Palladio's ideas uh, using symmetry as a device so profound in a way that, I mean, you can view, it's located, Villa Rotunda is located on a, a, uh, on higher inclined with the landscape around. Um, I've seen the pictures. I haven't been there, obviously, but um, the proportions of the base, the middle and the top is there, obviously, but it's almost like a temple, Villa Rotunda, functioning as a house. It's amazing. So there you go. The Renaissance architect, they venture forth, um, taking in the classical antiquity orders and proportions and create their own. They're using um, certain sequences, mathematical sequences, obviously, uh, in terms of elevations and uh, plan. In modern architecture... Uh, could influence with this uh, idea, but more postmodern architecture, obviously. Um, when I went to Leicester Polytechnic in the 80s, um, some of the students took into the pop, used the proportion system and redesigned the project work. Something that I found um, interesting, and I started learning about this use of order and proportion. Uh, later in my, um, I didn't learn about this when I was in uh, Malaysia, but I learned about this when I was right in the middle of sec, uh, second and third year in Leicester Polytechnic. So another historical um, two more. And another one is Viole Le Duc, and the other one is Ruskin. So in the conclusion to this podcast, I'll just touch upon Viole Le Duc and Ruskin. Eugene Emmanuel Viole Le Duc, 1814 to 1879, was a French architect and author. Well, the image that is in front of me is... Um, you know, a section is is in an exonometric. It's drawn in three D, an area where you have the four arches and a vault. And number one, you just show the structure. Number two shows the uh, the the brick um, or the material used. To, uh, to fill in the structure, which is, I assume is concrete, and then um, filled in from the top so that you accentuate 
the arches. The arches is um, the arch is pointed arch. So Viollet le Duc was a French architect and author. His major restoration projects included Notre Dame de Paris, Paris, the Basilica of Saint Denis, Mont Saint Michel, Saint Chapelle, and the medieval walls of the city of Carcassonne. His later writings in the relationship between form and function in architecture had a notable influence on a new generation of architects, touching onto modern architecture, obviously, including Antoni Gaudi, Victor Horta, Art Nouveau, and Louis Sullivan. Louis Sullivan, who designed the first skyscrapers in Chicago, adopted classical uh, architecture aesthetics with the base, middle, and the top. But obviously the planning was um, veering towards modern and utilitarian architecture with lift lobby and, you know, it's skyscrapers, but it's not that high, but I forgot, was it 10-story? <coughs> but it's the start of it. Now, Vieli Le Duc influenced structural rationalism. Structural rationalism <coughs> in a way that his, he referred to Gothic architecture and he was in the middle, uh, at the end of Gothic architecture, the Neo-Gothic revival period. I mean, this is uh, in the 19th century. Yeah? And in his writings, I mean, he did his own work, but he wrote as well. So double expressions. His, uh, his writings are the one that is influential. And um, as I said just now, the architects were influenced by this, ranging from um, the Art Nouveau architects, uh, particular individuals, and the idea of structural rationalism, obviously, influenced modern architecture thereafter, because the idea to uh, innovate in, um, f uh, on concrete structures was really strong. Now, the last but not least is John Ruskin, right there in Arts and Craft Movement. So another and the last example on historical architectural theories for our series. This is the first series. So Ruskin, John Ruskin, 1819 to 1900, was the leading English art critic of the Victorian era, as well as an art patron, draftsman, watercolorist, philosopher, prominent social thinker, and philanthropist. He wrote on subjects as varied as geology, architecture, myth, ornithology, study of birds, literature, education, botany, and political economy. His writing styles and literary forms were equally varied. Ruskin's developing interests in architecture, and particularly in the Gothic, led to the first work to bear his name. 
the Seven Lamps of Architecture in 1849. It contained 14 plates etched by the author. The title refers to seven moral categories that Ruskin considered vital to and inseparable from all architecture. They were sacrifice, truth, power, beauty, life, memory, and obedience. So another book that Ruskin wrote is The Stones of Venice. Influential to the arts and craft movements, others such as William Morris and Frank Lloyd Wright. Now again, this is the arts and craft movement. Arts and craft movement is that movement in England um, that influenced the uh, society. Uh, sorry, yeah, society of protection of ancient buildings (SPAB). The SPAB influenced the conservation movement, and um, later on in the 1950s um, in England, um, I mean, subsequently, the English Heritage was created and then the National Trust under protection of um, ancient monuments and um, architecture. And the listed building process, grade one to two star and two created. So, you know, for example, grade one and two star, uh, especially grade one, you cannot touch a single thing. You cannot uh, destroy a single thing outside and inside of the building. Once it's listed, you're the owner, but you cannot touch it. If you did, you destroy something, you know how much the penalty is? £500,000. Half a million pounds. And that's how strict it was in terms of protection of uh, listed buildings. Uh, so much so that this, as one would like to know, um, heritage or historical tourism is the number one income generation for England and Wales, you know, and Scotland, and so on later on. So, um, pretty, very pretty color, watercolor that John Ruskin did, and obviously influencing so much the conservation movement and others and the idea of the architect doing everything, yeah. Uh, William Morris did a lot of textile. Um, William Morris is more closer to um, building architecture or designing and building architecture than Ruskin. Uh, there are diff different individuals here, and uh, Frank Lloyd Wright would be a good example, although he's American. Um, he did everything from designing. Um, uh, the furniture, the, the wall texture, the interior, the lighting, the screens to the whole building. And this is sim similar to Charles Rennie Mackintosh, uh, the Scotsman, and many other um, arts and crafts movement architects such as Boissy and Lethaby, and I'm sure there are many I've forgotten at this point, but we can see that this influence and the love of medieval architecture 
Uh, yeah, how did the arts and craft movement movement started? Because a reaction to the de- uh, the destruction of medieval architecture and the reproduction at that time, the Victorian era of medieval architecture. You know, you imagine if you were doing it at that time, you destroy medieval architecture and then you copy them and then you make new architecture. I mean, so hence the idea to protect medieval architecture from the, uh, you know, it could be 1100, 1200s, you know, during those time, even earlier, um, protect them, the Tudor architecture and so on, uh, from destruction. And uh, subsequently in the modern um, period, uh, 20th century, other uh, examples of historical architecture from the Victorian period were protected as well. So even uh, Dokomomo, um, the modern movement architecture in the 40s, 50s and 60s are now protected. So I don't know much about what's happening now, but I'm sure there's still the protection of all these ancient buildings and also modern architecture going on under the listing process. But because of sustainability, um, the social aspects of reusing this architecture, uh, you know, you're able to provide access into these buildings so that people can enjoy them. To maintain this building, you need to have public funds. So access planning uh, with the funding from the Heritage Lottery Fund of the Arts Council in England managed to maintain these properties and managed to provide funds for people to maintain these properties. So so that's interesting, actually, um, how the arts and craft movement and Ruskin as the protagonist, among others, such as William Morris, helped to build this um, this idea to protect buildings and for the future generation to enjoy. So with that, I'd like to conclude the first um, of the architectural theory series on introduction to architecture theory, starting with the historical architectural architectural theories Vitruvius, Palladio, Viole, Leduc and Ruskin. So we shall meet again next episode with the other architectural theories. Thank you very much for listening.